Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. Governor Evers is getting backlash from Republicans after he submits new maps to the state's high court over the redistricting battle. Plus, Assembly Democrats search for their next leader at the Capitol as the position opens up. And the Republican chair of the Senate Election Committee calls on Michael Gableman to wrap up his election investigation. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for December 17th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. So, J.R., we're going to start with redistricting. We have mm -hmm. uh, quite an update because we are dealing with timelines at this point right now. So Governor Evers submit a new map proposal to the state Supreme Court that kind of has the least change approach here. Now, Evers sent it, um, these legislative maps, his office says makes fewer changes to current lines than Republican lawmakers' version, while also adding one more majority black assembly seat. We'll kind of get down to the racial breakdown a little bit. But, of course, this got a lot of criticism because Republicans are saying, you didn't even have a hearing on this. You didn't let the public weigh in. And that, from the get-go, was Governor Evers' MO, right? People should talk about this. People should weigh in. So in a joint statement, uh, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemicue and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said, now the governor has abandoned his campaign rhetoric, promising for independently drawn maps to rapidly and secretly draw his own rigged maps without public input. You and I were both at the press conference yesterday. You asked the governor about this, and we're going to hear from him right now, kind of defending not having a public hearing on them. I believe we put forward the best maps possible, uh, creating many more uh, um, competitive races than we've ever seen in recent years in Wisconsin. Is it where we would want to be? Fair maps is where we would want to be. But as far as reaching out to the public on this in such a short timeline, we used the, uh, some of the criteria that that fair maps process uh, had and had public hearings on in the past. So, Jr. now let's get into the weeds of this, mm -hmm. right? At first, I kind of talked about uh, the racial breakdown and the changes of what Evers proposed. Uh, what can you tell us a little bit about that? So, one, uh, least change is in the eye of the beholder, right? So, Republicans submitted their map to the court by the deadline on Wednesday. Their least change approach still has a pretty healthy Republican majority in both houses. On the political composition, Evers says, look, my map is like mid-40s for assembly seats or last six elections if you... Statewide elections average the performance. We're more there, more competitive. But the racial part, which we talked about a lot, is because you have to meet the Voting Rights Act with any map. It's just a requirement. Republicans say, look, we've met the Voting Rights Act. We have six majority black districts in the Assembly, two majority Hispanic districts in the Assembly, two black districts in the Senate, basically status quo. Evers is at arguing he's added one more Assembly seat and that there's another seat in the Racine area that is um, a, a minority influence district. But he's using a different formula to get there. And what I mean by that is, traditionally in redistricting, you are black. If you check in the census, you are black or black and white. They're using two formulas. One uses that traditional formula to evaluate districts. Another one says if you have any black heritage, if you're black and Hispanic, black and Asian, um, you then qualify as for the black voting age population. Using that formula in those seven assembly seats, Evers's map is above 50% to low 50s for black voting age population. 
if you overlay with that the non-white voting population total added in all minorities together, you're like 58% minority to like mid-60s. The hitch, though, is what's the line for the Voting Rights Act where you're, for lack of a better term, black enough or Hispanic enough? Lena Taylor is a black lawmaker from Milwaukee. She's very critical of the year's maps, the first ones, the People's Commission maps. She voted against them in the Senate. Her argument is it's not just the number. It's the turnout in that district. So, for example, look at assembly seat with Shorewood. Shorewood is a fairly affluent white suburb of Milwaukee, right? The voters in Shorewood turn out at very high numbers. That's been in a traditionally Democratic district that has traditionally been a majority-minority black district. Her argument is just being at 50% or 51, 55 even, may not be enough because blacks voters have lower turnout on average. Um, there are other challenges. She, she argues for a standard, like for example, if there's incarceration issues in a district where people aren't eligible to vote because they're on probation, that should be considered. I'm not a lawyer, I can't tell you if that's in the Voting Rights Act somewhere. But she argues that just being 50 is not enough. It could be 55 in some seats, could be 60 in some seats. It depends on the turnout dynamic of that district and with that one with Shorewood, she argues, it's not good enough. Now, she also says that Republican maps also aren't good enough that they failed to take into account this uh, dynamic. To her, seven seats that could be uh, black majority uh, minority districts aren't as good as fewer seats where you have guarantees, essentially, right. of the community being able to pick the candidate of its choice. Now, where's the Supreme Court going to fall on this? That's the big so question because the court you. has got maps from lawmakers, from Evers, from interest groups. They're all due at noon on Wednesday. The question is, what's the court standard going to be? Well, pick a map from among them submitted to it, take one and tweak it. I don't think it's going to draw its own map, but that's one option for it. But who's going to win out? And again, that least change definition. Republicans say our, our map's least change definition, but Evers went out of his way to move fewer voters to have things say, well, look, we did a, even a least change approach, a less least change approach than you did. Here's our map. But the court's not going to consider uh, political composition of the districts. So I don't know how that's all going to play out with justices, but, you know, they've got the maps now. It's all up to them. We're waiting right. for them. I was just going to say, because they now have so many, a lot more to choose from mm -hmm. from where we started out, because Evers now has the people's maps and these new ones. The people's maps weren't submitted to the court, though. So oh, those okay. are part of the record. This is, this is his map. Okay. And to the Republicans' point, I mean, like, why didn't the governor have, like, a public hearing with the People's Commission? Like, have a, a Zoom call, pull out his map. We got it, like, at 2 or 3 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon after it had been submitted. It had been looked at before. We hadn't seen it before. So there's some criticism there of, like, not letting it kind of be out in the public eye. He argues a time crunch, right? Mm -hmm. There is this deadline. <laughs> got the decision November 30th, least change. Had to have a map in two weeks. But I know guys can draw maps pretty quickly. <laughs> I can too, JR. <laughs> I got a pen. I can just squiggle some lines okay. in here. Um, the other big news of this week is there's going to be some shakeup in the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the in the assembly for Democratic leadership because uh, Representative Gordon Hintz from Oshkosh uh, formally announced that he's going to step down from the leadership post next month, essentially to have more time with his family and serve his district. Now, Hintz was first elected in the assembly in 2006 and has been majority leader ever since former Representative Peter Barca stepped down from the post in 2017. Now, Hintz has two children. He said this in his statement that he'll serve out the remainder of his term and then make a decision next year whether or not he'll seek re-election in 2022. Uh, here's a quick quote from his statement. I have been humbled and honored to lead the Assembly Democrats for the past four years, but I want to have more time for my district and my family, which includes two children under the age of five. Now, this isn't 
the first time we've kind of, well, not the first time, but we're seeing, I, I guess, a lot of lawmakers recently saying either they're leaving their leaving their uh, district altogether, they're going to do something else, move to the pri private sector, and now we're kind of seeing this shakeup in leadership as well. Um, before we kind of dive into this, let's bring up our next slide about kind of who's in, who's out, um, because there will be elections for some offices on Monday to replace Hints and uh, to seek uh, the assistant minority leader position as well. So right now, we know for sure, JR, uh, running for the for Hintz's old seat is Representative Greta Neubauer, a Democrat from Racine. Now we have another announcement that is leaving the assistant minority leader is Representative Diane Hesselbein. She wants to run for Senator Erpenbach's seat in the state Senate. Right now, everyone who is interested in Hesselbein's current seat is Representative Joni Emerson, Representative Jimmy Anderson, Representative Kaylin Hayward, and Representative Sheila Stubbs. So you've been kind of making calls on mm -hmm. this because the, on Monday we're going to learn more about, you know, who's going who's to make their speech and how are they going to pitch it to Democrats and who's going to take over these leadership roles. So first off, this is very unusual to have two leadership positions open up middle of a session. Interesting to note that Hintz became leader because Barker was kind of forced out over his Foxconn vote. Go back in 2017, Barker's district is right next to where Foxconn is. That was something he voted for his district, but it did say, well, Democrats, because that made it harder for the message against that when their leader supported it. I've only seen a couple other instances of like leadership changes. Both the other ones were under pressure as well. Jody Robs was pushed out as Senate leader in 2000. Seven, I think it was, in the Senate because of the budget process. That was a long time ago. But anyway, uh, this is very unusual. It also means the new leaders have a tough task in front of them because it's not just about policy. It's about leading through the election process. Exactly. So now the new leader has got to make connections with lobbyists and people who donate to the donor community to raise money for races in the fall. That person has got a narrower window than he or she would have had if they took over in January. But hence said... He wasn't that sure about running for election in 2020. He committed to be leader through the budget and redistricting. Both are basically done, so this is the time for him. So for Neubauer, only person running right now, uh, barring surprise on Monday, challenge is going to be getting organized, getting a staff together, raising money. For the assistance job, these things sometimes shake themselves out. As people make calls, they go, okay, I don't have the support that I need, so I might do something else. Jody Emerson, for example, was talking about running for the assistance or the, the leader, the minority leader's job originally. After a day or two of that, she said, no, I'm going to run for the assistance job once Diane said she's not running for, or she's going to step down in February. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch the cases that all four make. Sheila Stubbs can say, look, I've, I helped do the speaker's task, task force. force. on racial disparities. Yep. Yep. I helped shepherd those bills. I got stuff done in a bipartisan atmosphere. Kalen Hayward, he's part of leadership right now. It's not the top rung, but he's part of leadership. Very young guy from Milwaukee. Milwaukee's a power center for Democrats in terms of the uh, Assembly and the Senate. Jimmy Anderson is from the Madison area, another power center. Um, and Joey Emerson from Eau Claire. They're all fairly new, except for Anderson, who's almost like an old guy in the crowd. <laughs> I was just going to say there's a little bit of an age gap, <laughs> With a few but he's, terms. he's been around. I mean, he's, he's not served. that long, though. Like, True. I've got ties older than he is, I think. <laughs> but um, so it's going to be fascinating to watch how this shakes out. And sometimes Democrats struggle with, well, if Greta's going to be the leader and we have somebody else from Milwaukee and then we're a Southeast Wisconsin-based leadership team, how do you diversify the ranks? Because Lisa right. Subek is also in leadership number four spot. Uh, Mark Spreitzer from Beloit, he's there. 
So for Emerson, she says, look, we have a Western Wisconsin person if I'm in leadership. And I don't know if it matters to the public a whole lot, but they make that, that case sometimes in leadership about should we all be from these power centers and then reinforce the idea that we're, we are a Madison and Milwaukee party, essentially. Yeah, and they're going to make their pitch uh, on Monday when they do take these votes, and each of them will give their speech to Democrats. And like you said, a lot of things can change over the weekend. I mean, they're making calls now, they're mm-hmm. going to make calls over the weekend, and maybe they just don't have the votes that they were hoping to have. Noteworthy, there'll be a transition for both jobs. So Gordon steps down January 10th, so Greta, or if there's a surprise challenge, will have a transition period to kind of get up to speed. Diane's not leaving until February 14th, so that new person will have also have a transition, a longer transition period, but that'll help somewhat in getting kind of prepared for the, the rigors of the office. Now, it wouldn't be a weekly rewind show if we didn't <laughs> talk about the elections, but a little bit of different approach this week that we're going to talk about um, is going to be Republican, a top Republican of the Senate Elections Committee, Senator Kathleen Kathleen Bernier uh, is calling for Gableman's probe to end. Now, it's important to note this is not our first time kind of standing up to the GOP rhetoric that we hear of, you know, unfounded claims of uh, of election fraud, all these conspiracy theories. But she really put her foot down uh, Mm -hmm. during this committee hearing, or I should say kind of informal hearing. She's had a lot of these try to debunk conspiracy theories and whatnot. So she's joined many Democrats who repeatedly say individuals who continue to question the results of the election and spew falsehoods, falsehoods, excuse me, are only sowing doubt in democracy. Now, she also said it's resulting in more threats against election officials. And this comes at a time where she also tweeted um, a few days afterwards this committee hearing that she's been contemplating retirement, but in quote, I may rethink it. Right-wingers are calling for my resignation is motivation. Let's hear from her um, on this committee hearing that was held on Monday. No election is perfect, but there is not evidence of intentional malfeasance, no evidence that the election in 2020 wasn't accurate. When Benjamin Franklin came out of the convention, and our Constitution was created, he was asked, what kind of a government do we have? And he said, a republic if we can keep it. We're in jeopardy of losing it. This is a charade, what's going on with this constant drumbeat of all the massive voter fraud. There's a simple explanation for almost every single thing that people accuse election officials of doing. There's an explanation for almost all of it. And so I think the Gableman um, investigation should come to a close sooner rather than later. Chair, like I mentioned, this isn't her first time criticizing just election lies, I guess Mm -hmm. you can say, going on. But also, she said uh, the investigation initiated by Speaker Voss and is, 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 you know, put this whole Gableman investigation together. Um, She also said that threatens to undermine their own party. And I don't know, between you and I, I want to get your opinion on this. I, I believe this is one of the only... Republicans that have really put her foot down when it when it comes to Gableman's investigation and calling it to end because we've seen call we've seen several Democrats mm-hmm. asking for this just just please stop. <laughs> yeah. So worth noting while Kathy is being championed by Democrats for talking about Gableman, she also put a letter today with uh, two dozen re- Republican colleagues calling on the congressional delegation not to approve these Dem um, election bills that are pending before Congress right now. So she still believes that you know Republicans have a, a 
she has some local control, or right. there should be local control in elections, I should say. She doesn't want the Democratic priorities to, priorities to take, it, take a press, pre- precedence. Sorry. What's interesting is I talk to Republicans all the time who go quietly, this gambling thing could be an issue for us. Um, they're worried that the longer it draws out, it's going to not come to a conclusion that some Republicans want, which is they want to see Donald Trump back in office. They want to see people you know, penalized, put in jail, whatever, to say the election was stolen. If it fails to produce those two things, and we all know that, one, you cannot turn over, turn over the election results in Wisconsin. They're done. Signed, sealed, delivered. Biden won Wisconsin. Not going to change. I still have called the Racine County DA's office every week, multiple times, since the sheriff gave his uh, presentation. There's been no charging decision out of that office. Mm-hmm. Kind of tells you something, right? It's been almost two months. So that's probably not going to happen where people are going to be penalized, barring some turnaround. So then what? If Republican voters are disappointed by the results of the Galen investigation and go, well, this is what I wanted, if it's released in March, April, May, June, pick your month next year, do they go, ah, I'm not that excited anymore about turning out? There are Republicans who will argue that we need to get this done now to create space from the fall. They can then go pass more bills and say, look, we passed these bills. Evers veto them. He's the bad guy. He's standing in the way. Now, I just don't know like how big that chunk of the base is. I've asked, and I get numbers all the place, about how many you know, base voters they think are, are really buying into this stuff or really this is a passionate thing for them. But in a purple state, if it's 1% or 2% of the base, that's a problem. And also we had a Marquette University Law School poll that showed a lot of people don't even know who Michael Gableman is. Mm-hmm. I would say a majority of voters that were surveyed in that. So is, is it really resonating with a lot of people? Who knows? Is it just a small base, like you said, of Republicans that are fired up about this, that are fully backing Gableman? Then you have the other, you know, maybe people more northwestern of the state that don't follow everything that happens in Madison um, that have no idea this is even going on or don't keep tabs with it. And we know that best case scenario right now is Michael Gibbon won't talk to the mayors of Madison and Green Bay um, until sometime maybe, In and I mean maybe, late Feb- January, early February, because yeah. next Thursday is the hearing on Call's motion to quash the subpoena for Megan Wolf. Best case scenario, Gibbon talks to her after the holidays. The January 21st hearing in the effort to basically detain the two mayors of Milwaukee, or sorry, of Madison and Green Bay, that's a briefing schedule. Mm-hmm. That means we're going to have briefs that could last into March, April. Like, when's this going to end? Voss told us all this week right. it's going to take longer. Um, how long is that going to be? And how much money is it going to yes. cost, too? I think that's another sticking point where Republicans are going to have to go back to their district if this ever ends, mm-hmm. you know, during a, a August primary season and say, you know, maybe they're going to have to be asked about, like, where'd all my money go? There was no results, or those are the results that I didn't want. So. And when I asked Gordon Hintz about this, his theory is they don't want it to ever end. Yeah, right, he, he said, said the same thing to me. Mm-hmm. He, want, he believes that Republicans want to keep it going through the election to avoid any disappointment right, right. for voters. Right. And they can always say that there's an investigation going on, there's something off about 2020, and keep that alive. And we might just keep seeing Gableman having these uh, reports, informational hearing in the Assembly Elections Committee, just giving little tidbits. It's, it's almost teases at this mm-hmm. point, though. He's not fully telling us the scope of his investigation. We know he's targeting those election grants that were funded um, by Mark Zuckerberg that was distributed to many municipalities across the state that Republicans have an issue with, um, and also looking into these claims of alleged voter fraud at the Racine County nursing home. So. That's kind of all we know right now. We know who he's surrounding himself with, with staff members. 
So we shall see if, we keep, if we keep seeing these updates. But they're just little nuggets of information, I, I would call them, though. And now he's at an uh, event with Rebecca Clayfish and praising her. I mean, if, if Gabin wants to send a message that he's going to have a, a fair, a, a balanced report, he's not doing a very good job of surrounding himself with people or, or taking public stands that would suggest, yes, this is an even-keeled investigation looking at the truth, not a partisan result. And when I asked Voss specifically about that, too, he's like, well, I want people on Gableman's staff who is questioning the election, a.k.a., in a sense, conspiracy theorists who Gableman has hired. So that's what he says. Mm-hmm. He wants people to prove those conspiracy theories may be wrong. But uh, anyways, uh, let's move on to our next topic is going to be bail reform. Uh, I think we talked a few weeks ago that criminal justice, uh, tough on crime bills is going to be Republicans and Democrats uh, key issue or one of the key issues heading into the new year. Uh, this week, I spoke to Attorney General Josh Call, who said he's supportive of a Republican bill uh, that would reform the state's bail system. Now, Call said the Waukesha parade tragedy shows it's time to start up updating its policies when a judge is determining a bill. Now, the Republican bill would essentially allow judges to consider how dangerous a defendant might be to the public when they are determining bail amount. Right now, the state's constitution technically doesn't say that. When I talked to um, Representative uh, Cindy Duco, she says, sometimes this is already happening in Wisconsin, but we should get it on the books. We know constitutional amendments kind of take two consecutive sessions to pass, so it's going to be a while. But Call wants to take it a little bit step further. He says he wants to look at the federal system when uh, determining setting bail, which would essentially essentially wouldn't allow someone, you know, say I give you a, a million-dollar bond or a bail amount, but you could pay it. So it would kind of eliminate those instances where someone who has money, who has resources, can still get out and they're still a, a danger to the community. So um, this is a theme that we're going to be seeing. We also heard Call said he doesn't want Milwaukee District Attorney uh, John Chisholm to resign. He said he'd rather see that should be left up to the voters. So we're seeing a lot of this in the news about bail reform, about Chisholm, um, but, you know, might not see any developments on this until next year. Well, one of the nuances, because when I talked to Robin Voss to those, all these year-end interviews, he wants to do bail reform as well, but he still argues that there should not be de facto prison sentence from being on bail because he said if you're so reasonably innocent until proven guilty, um, if you can't get out on bail, you might lose your livelihood, lose your job, all these things, even if you're innocent. So how do you balance those things going forward? That's the nuance they have to deal with if they're going to do something legislatively. All right. Oh, oh I forgot to talk to toss to our video. So sorry about that. Um, let's hear a little bit about Attorney General Josh Call. He's uh, going to be talking about what the federal system uses right now and how that would look like in Wisconsin. I think the proposal to make sure that uh, danger to the community can be taken into account when pretrial release decisions are made is, is a good one. And I do think we should uh, make that change. But I, I don't think it goes far enough in strengthening our system because you know, I, I think that if we look at the federal model, it's it's more effective at protecting public safety. It's not a system where uh, it comes down to some degree to ability to pay as to whether people get out. And so, you know, you don't have a situation like you might in the state where somebody may have a high bail who's a danger to the public, but if they have access to resources, they might be able to get out. We're going to move on now to the COVID-19 pandemic. We know Omicron variants um, are spreading throughout Wisconsin. We talked on it a little bit uh, last week, but uh, I asked the governor during his press briefing yesterday, has he heard basically any update? Um, It was last week he requested uh, the federal um, government to send 100 FEMA workers to help really overwhelmed hospital staff right now. His update was that, well, you know, I spoke to them this week. They're discussing it. 
might have a plan worked out within a few days. Um, and this kind of comes at a time when hospitals and long-term care facilities are entering a crisis mode as COVID-19 infections rise and they're also dealing, like I said, with staffing shortages. So, um, you know, this is something I don't think is going to go anywhere. I've been talking a lot about uh, with hospital workers and people who, you know, run hospitals across the state. And they're saying, yes, our beds are full with COVID patients, but we've been dealing with a staffing shortage even before the pandemic. So, you know, there's been some Republican claims that, you know, all the beds are full because of COVID-19 mandates. Well, there was a survey this week by the Wisconsin Hospital Association, and they actually showed that only 2% of employees of those surveyed are leaving because of vaccine mandates. So there's a lot of other different factors going on here than you know what other people are saying about the real cause of the overwhelmed hospitals at this point. Um, anything you'd like to add about COVID, Jr.? No, didn't really I have. Just, a, it was like I think I just did a quick little recap there. Just but. watching if they establish the hospital. Yeah, know, there's a need for that. At some oh, the point. field hospital. I also asked you about that. You said it's an option. His first option right now is to get these federal health care workers to start helping uh, many hospitals who are struggling uh, to keep up. Uh, let's get to stock picks. This week, this is a big announcement. Tom yeah. Barrett is officially leaving his post after 18 years as the mayor of Milwaukee to be the Luxembourg ambassador. Yeah, well, it was surprising how quickly it went because Very there have been quickly. a lot of nominations from the Biden administration, especially on uh, foreign affairs, been held up. Uh, Ron Johnson... Yesterday afternoon, I believe it was, said he yeah. supported the nomination. He was talking to his Republican colleagues to try and make sure there are no holdups. Now, why was that important? Because Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley of Texas and Missouri have been placing holds on all kinds of nominations, kind of mucking up the gears as a protest Biden's foreign policy. This thing came out of nowhere. It, it really did. I just saw it like late last night, and I'm like, wait, what? Well, I, I kept che checking the calendar, too, of when it was going to be on, and then I think Johnson's statement yesterday kind of gave us a hint that maybe it was going to come down today. So Schumer made a motion for basically unanimous consent to bring it up, pass on a voice vote, and away we go. Now, what's key about this is when does Tom Barrett step down and when does the vacancy open up? If the vacancy is open by December 28th, the Common Council can call an election that will match up perfectly with the spring election, uh, primary in February, special election in April. If it's beyond December 28th, you can still have the primary in the April ballot, but then you have a special in May. Much past that, you, or past March 2nd, then you get in kind of this, when are you going to have an election? Then you might push it off into the fall. I'm pretty sure Republicans would want to have this before the fall because think about it. Do you want to have any, one more reason for Milwaukee voters to turn out in November if you're a Republican? No. So getting this through helps in that regard. Um, the question is, of the candidates to replace Barrett, who's it help, right, to have a quick election? Well, if you're more funded, better funded, better organized, that would help. Um, for Kavler Johnson, it's kind of a, a good and a bad thing. He's organized, he's running, he's going to become interim mayor, but it'll only be interim mayor for a little bit for that primary in the general election if it's a February and April one, right? Mm -hmm. The longer it was, the more time he'd have to be in the, on the, in the office saying, I'm the mayor, I'm the de facto incumbent. And he would have a better record to tout while yep. on the campaign trail. And another interesting fact, too, is that if it, if they had to do a special election, it would cost taxpayers mm -hmm. tens to possibly like thousands of tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, last time I spoke to the Milwaukee Elections Commission, so their preferred route is to have yep. the February primary and general in April. I believe it's April fifth. Other big names: Marina Dmitrovich, who's an alderwoman in Milwaukee; Bob Donovan, father, f former alderman; Ernell Lucas, who's a county sheriff. Those are some of the names we're looking about. Daniel Reamer, state lawmaker, he's talked about running for mayor. So. Also, having the spring timing is good for Reamer because he wouldn't have to worry about his seat in the legislature to run for mayor. So. 
Uh, also this week for Mixed, you have uh, some turnover in Governor Evers' uh, cabinet this week. So Joel Brennan is leaving the DOA, uh, secretary's job to go work for this greater Milwaukee group. Um, it's a job he couldn't pass up, he told me. It's been open twice since he was 17 years old. Once when he was 17, once when he was 31. The last time was 20 years ago. So this is not a job opened up very often. Um, Joel is a Milwaukee guy. He used to work for Tom Barrett, involved a number of organizations in Milwaukee. He still lives in Milwaukee. He's been driving back and forth from Milwaukee every day. Really? Unless wow. he works out of the <laughs> state office in Milwaukee, yes. He has two kids in high school. It all makes sense of why he wants to leave and go back to Milwaukee full time. At the same time, it's happening right before an election. Now, it's not right before we've got 10 months until the election, but it's not great for the governor to lose a key cap member's cabinet this close to the election. It's a bigger deal, though, for the budget. And now, Evers is not guaranteed to be doing a budget in 2023, but you want to have your DOA secretary in place because the budget process actually begins this summer. You start doing budget directions to agency heads. They start pulling stuff together. So having somebody up to speed on that was going to help. Kathy Blumenfeld, who has been DFI secretary, she slides over now becomes Secretary of DOA. She is going to be the third woman to lead the agency in its history. Uh, Ellen Novak did it also under Scott Walker. Another woman, Doris Hansen, did it under Tony Earle back in the 80s. So it's now her challenge to lead the agency of all. They call it Department of All. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. it covers everything. That definitely. And uh, following this week is Wisconsin's population growth. So we knew from the census numbers that we're not great in terms of population growth. Our rate was the slowest it's been uh, ever. Diving those numbers a little bit, this, this new report came out showed that under 18, we had a drop in our under 18 population that was twice as severe as it was in the previous decade. Now, what's that mean? It's a cascading effect. The fewer young people you have, the fewer kids you have in high school. Fewer kids in high school, fewer kids you have the UW system, the more slots open, fewer jobs to fill. How do you fix that? Well, Evers this week announced, you know, the first run of grants for job, uh, job uh, training or stuff to help with the, the shortage. We have a conservative group calling for the elimination of the income tax to oh, try right, to yeah. bring in, like, more people. We have to either have more kids or have more, more migration in to Wisconsin to address our issues. Without those two things, we're in trouble. So how do you fix that? That's the challenge kind of going for one of the many challenges for Wisconsin. And this report showing that the, the drop in kids under 18, now I've helped. I got two uh, when it comes to that <laughs> issue. But that drop is something that's concerning for all kinds of uh, segments of Wisconsin's economy. All right. Well, we'll see where it goes from there. That will do it for this week. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.